Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Paul Shannon. Howdy, all. Neil Roberts. Uh, it's an honor just to be nominated. And a special guest, James Milner from SitePen. Hello. Site what now? Site something. <laughs> Site button. What is that? I think it's where we work. The intro is a great overview of what SitePen is all about. Says Neil because he did the intro. I did. That's right. If you don't know what SitePen's all about, rewind. <laughs> 45 <laughs> seconds. Exactly. There will be a quiz at the end. That's right. Catch Neil's brilliant intro. Mm-hmm. All righty. We've got a fun topic today. That's why we brought James on. James is our expert today. So if he's wrong in anything, make sure you take to Twitter and tell him why. But first, we've got our TypeScript community update. Not a lot happening right now, but Palantir, the creator of TSLint, came out with a blog post about the future of TSLint. I think we highlighted this a few episodes ago that ESLint is actually going to work on integrating features from TSLint, whether they take them wholesale or just start doing TypeScript analysis into ESLint. And so Palantir kind of wrote down their thoughts and where they're going to go with it. So they are working with ESLint. There's going to be a road forward. We'll put this link in the show notes for anybody that's using TSLint. So it's kind of interesting, but there'll be a path forward for working with TSLint and ESLint. I would imagine that ESLint for a time will parse a TSLint configuration and those sorts of things. So if you're interested in that, check out the show notes for that link. They're merging them together because TypeScript's taking over the world, right? <laughs> Correct. It's basically JavaScript now, and they're like, we might as well. That's right. All right. That's really it for the community updates. So, Neil, I think you have something for us. Yeah, I have a fun little activity. We've done some truthy fallacies in other games. Going back, I thought it'd be fun to just uh, do a tweet roundtable. Some of the things that I've found interesting recently... Pretty much nothing that really has much to do with this <laughs> podcast. But I thought we could just read some stuff and discuss it. So the first one does involve programming. There was a fun kind of thread put out by the Twitter account is Chantastic. We've had on the podcast during NEJS. And he says, cleverness is laziness with ego. I thought that was a fun... Cleverness is laziness with, with ego? ego. Yeah. I don't know if I'd agree with that. Really? Sometimes it takes a lot of work to be clever. Yeah, it's especially if you write clever code, it takes a lot of work to debug that <laughs> when it goes wrong. Programming in general is laziness, right? I suppose. All right. I think I agree and disagree. I don't know. It seems like generally like it takes more effort to make code readable than it does to make it like a mess, I think. So I don't know, like being clever most of the time, I don't really see the benefit in clever code apart from when it's like, for example performance related or it's like there's like a very specific reason why it's clever like i wouldn't say like 95 percent of your code should not be clever it should just be for other people to maintain and use right yeah 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 Yeah, but i think the gist of it is that if you do have a lot of ego you're going to end up writing clever code right not if you're not lazy you start from laziness right you start saying like i don't want to spend a ton of time writing this 
but I'm so smart, I'll be able to do it without having to really put a lot of effort into it. So what's the converse? Who's the person with ego, but is not lazy? What is he right? Or he or she? No, no. With no ego that isn't lazy. They're a business person. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next tweet. <laughs> uh, yeah. Next tweet is by Kibblesmith. It is about what well, you can infer what it's about. Real quick, real quick. Yeah. Kibblesmith? Kibblesmith. Daniel Kibblesmith. He's a comedian. Oh, okay. He's not a comedian. He's a writer. He was one of the original writers for Groupon back in the day. All right. All right. Go ahead. I bet the sorting hat ceremony is really fascinating at first. And then he starts taking his sweet time on the 11th kid and you realize there's 200 more and you're not allowed to look at your phone. It's a Harry Potter reference in case you missed it. I haven't read Harry Potter. It's a book. Yeah. What? What? <laughs> that weird. I haven't seen the movies either because I haven't read the books. Okay. Here's how the story goes. Harry Potter accidentally wins everything. There you go. Nice. Spoiler alert. Oh, shoot. Yeah. We didn't preempt that. We'll edit a spoiler alert in. So we just all agree that that's true. Okay, sure. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Next tweet is by Mighty Ernan. says, so my mom just told me that she sent my dad to the store to buy chorizo. And he bought soy chorizo thinking it was regular chorizo because he didn't get that it was soy meat. He thought it was confirming that it was chorizo. that's good i like that one a lot i understand that mistake (laughs) all right do you have any more yeah one more next tweet is by branson reese says there was an aqua teen hunger force dvd where you'd select play all and it would split the screen into like 20 sections and play all of them at once (laughs) in a horrible cacophony Extremely good and frustrating joke that I didn't think you were able to bypass. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, the makers of Aqua Teen Hunger Force would totally do that. That's so funny. I always like those noticing confusing UIs and then making a joke about them. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. That's Neil's Tweet Roundtable. Neil's Tweet Roundtable. I liked it. These are all things I've retweeted. So if you follow me, you'd heard these jokes. If you follow Potted Meat, you will have already seen it. Yeah. Our- <laughs> That's my contribution to the world. Soy chorizo. Soy chorizo. I liked soy chorizo one. That was a good one. All right. So today we have James on and James wrote a blog post, which we will put in the show notes. James wrote a blog post for SitePen. Hot off the press. Hot off the press, at least at the time of recording. Yeah. And it is about idle until urgent. Why don't you tell us what your blog post is about? So it's about this thing called first input delay. And so first input delay is like a user centric metric for like measuring the amount of delay that happens on the first input that the user gives to the website or a web application. And so, yeah, it's about like measuring and understanding what causes that delay basically. And then, yeah, idle till urgent is a kind of a way of kind of structuring your code that allows you to potentially kind of reduce that first input delay. So that's kind of how those two things relate. The idea here, right, is that the way that kind of approaches to developing applications have been emerging is that we've created a lot of bloat in just the kind of getting things set up, right, where we've front-loaded a lot of stuff that we don't necessarily need to, like they're not going to be displayed on the page that the user is accessing Some of them are just related to like framework setup and things like that. And all those things combined make it so that actually letting the user click on something can end up taking forever, even if that's not necessary. Right. 
So yeah, exactly that, which is there's, especially with increases in bundle sizes and increases in just the amount of JavaScript we ship to users, a lot of that code often, like you said, has some upfront initialization costs. And a lot of the time we don't necessarily like defer that work or, you know, like offload it to a, a later time, like lazily instantiate it even. So the, what ends up happening is everything is just happening upfront. And so when the user is trying to interact with the page and it's still like trying to initialize a widget that the user can't even see, for example, and that's going to block that first user interaction. So we should probably take a step back and say that these are metrics that we're capturing in the browser on all of our users. And so the first thing we need to have is a log server that we can log these things to from the client, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, there's a bunch of different metrics that I guess people use. So on web pages, the common ones are things like time to first pane or time to first meaningful pane, which are about kind of how long it takes to kind of render something kind of meaningful to the screen. And then there's things like time to interactive, which is how long it takes for the web page to be kind of like fully interactive without interruptions. And yeah, so there's all these different kind of metrics that we use to kind of determine how well an application responds to or is for users. And there's different ways of kind of like measuring those depending, like for those ones, there's things like Lighthouse, which ships in Chrome now, I think by default, which is basically like an auditing tool that will, yeah, it does a whole bunch of stuff. But one of the things it does is works out time to meaningful content pain and stuff like that. And another one I think that's quite common, I don't haven't used this extensively, but I think is it like web page e test. I'm saying that wrong probably. It's some combination of those words. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not necessarily in that order. Right, right. And yeah, that essentially does the same thing, but it's a web based like it's a website that you point at a URL and it will work out. It will basically trace your website and work out when things are happening and so forth. We've come a long way since the days of worrying about flash of unstyled content. Do you remember that as Neil? Oh, yeah. That was good. I mean, I still I like kind of these different metrics that you talk about, James, where we compare things like paint to interaction, where I do think that as a Band-Aid, people have said like, oh, well, we'll just make sure we paint to the screen quickly. Right. And then like you have all these, I mean, there's so many apps. I think Facebook is probably a pretty bad experience for me where I load the page and then I try to click on something and it does nothing. Like my notifications, I can see my notifications and I click on it and it doesn't do anything. And then I wait for a second and then, oh, now I can click on it. Now it responds. So I like the clarification, even just as a frame of thought mm -hmm. for saying that, no, it's important that we actually can use the page, not just see it. Yeah, I think that's kind of why there are so many of these metrics is because like not just one of them is the most important. Like it kind of depends on like user experience is a whole bunch of different facets. It's not just like one specific thing, right? It seems like they're all interrelated as well. Yeah, to a degree. To that's degree. Yeah, yeah. True, yeah. They're statistics, you know, so you can manipulate statistics to paint whatever story you want. Like, again, Facebook... Facebook will print a whole bunch of empty boxes just to have a fast time to paint. And then it goes back and loads like all the content. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one as well because it's kind of dependent on, I mean, I don't know much about this, but the kind of perceived performance as well is mm -hmm. like, so something can take just as long to be interactive, but if you render stuff first, there's kind of this perception that things, because things are being rendered that 
like it's loading faster if that makes sense yeah something's happening it's like having a loading spinner exactly yeah. so i mean it's interesting because it's not just about like having the fastest metrics it's also about having a user experience that like cognitively feels performant as well yeah correct yeah i think yeah you know this whole thing there's some stuff you just have to do right you can't get rid of it you know what you're trying to do is make sure that you pick a point and anything that happens before that point that doesn't need to you know you try to get rid of that like the analogy that it makes me think of is one of the things i heard about blood pressure testing right is that the specific number that you get there's not like a whole ton of knowledge about exactly what the different ones mean but if it keeps going up then you're in trouble. If it goes wildly down, you're in trouble, right? So it's first input delay in these different things. As you are making your site better, faster, stronger, you want to make sure that these numbers go down, that you are saying like, well, what's happening before this point? Will we get rid of it? Are these numbers going down over time? Mm-hmm. Or at least like not going up, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good one too, right? Like introducing a new API call that shouldn't be used until someone's clicking on something. If that suddenly shows up in your metrics as delaying everything, then someone made a mistake. Right. With this first input delay, are we talking about scrolling and zooming or is this something else? Yeah. So, I mean, scrolling and zooming technically don't count. And I'm trying to remember exactly why, but I think it's because this is my understanding and it might not be exactly right, but it uses a separate thread. So you don't have to worry about it being like a blocking operation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas things like a pointer event or a click or key up, all those kind of things, like actual interactions that have, for example, like clicking on a widget or a component that is powered by JavaScript, that would be considered like an interaction. Yep. Or yeah, for example, if you had like an input box that did something right. Yeah. So yeah, scrolling and zooming don't count. Mm-hmm. I have to remember it. I think you're right. I think that sounds about right. Yeah, hopefully that covers it, though, what I said about what interactions count. So like, why are people so concerned with first input delay in terms of like, I mean, obviously there's the user experience, right? And that's like the philosophical kind of touch point that you're working with. But like for people like Facebook and stuff, right, are people abandoning pages quickly if interaction doesn't happen fast enough? I mean, there's lots of general research around how delays are bad for obviously user experience, but also for like profit margins and stuff like that for with regards to slow load times, right? Like, so I think there's that kind of famous Amazon study where they, every second after like three seconds on the page load caused some percentage drop in profits. I can't remember exactly how much, but so, I mean, yeah, there's obviously the user experience side, but that also in turn can lead to, if you're a business can lead to drops in sales or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think I noticed this a lot on like news websites where they have like, you know, 3000 ad trackers on each page now. So I feel like a lot of the time I try to read some article and I'm just like, I'm going to give up after, you know, yep. waiting 10 seconds or whatever. Well, first you have to know that they have cookies and then you have to know you're using an ad blocker. Yeah. Right. And also that they are live right now <laughs> and that covers the entire screen of your phone. And you can sign up for a newsletter or they can push you notifications. Yeah. Yeah. News has gotten worse since... <laughs> since all of that. Yeah. I think like the core thing there is that you've got like the first impression on a website is really kind of important. So if a user goes to a website and they have a poor experience, they're probably less likely to come back, right? And like you were saying, kind of on, especially on news sites and stuff, bounce rates are, are quite high on sites like that. So 
if there's things that you can do that will diminish that or reduce that, I think that's quite a positive kind of selling point for a metric like first input delay. Yeah, I mean, I think ads and newsletters and stuff are actually a good example of things that don't need to happen before the page is displayed, right? Those are all content ad. They shouldn't be prerequisites to the page, and too many of them are. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's just the nature of advertising, unfortunately. And I don't know if that will change dramatically. Maybe it will. I don't know. But like, my gut feeling is like that's kind of how it's always been. That it's done before first interaction, you mean? No, I mean, just with regards to like the bundle sizes and pass times and compile times for, you know, add JavaScript, basically. I think it could be approved, right? <laughs> Even with all the cruft, I still think, you know, these complicated sites can lower their, for example, delay by a lot. Mm-hmm. But like, how do we fix this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of a tough problem. But like, fundamentally, what it comes down to is that if you have these big, long blocking operations, so you just have like JavaScript tasks that extend for a long period of time, then what ends up happening is you end up skipping frame renders. So the browser is always trying to render, depending on your screen, it's always trying to render at 60 frames per second, which roughly works out at every sort of 60 milliseconds it's trying to render a frame. And kind of what normally is happening is if you, you know, just doing a little bit of work, what it will do is it'll do the work, yield to the browser, browser renders a frame, um, that will appear on the screen. But if you have these big, long blocking operations, then those frames never get rendered and you end up with this kind of lag or jank or however you kind of want to refer to it, which gives you that kind of delay. That's what Mm -hmm. the kind of delay is, is like the lack of responsiveness and the lack of frame renders, basically. And so the way in which you kind of combat that or one method is to essentially like batch up your work into smaller chunks. And kind of like ideally, like the smaller, the better, because obviously the browser is trying to render every 60 milliseconds. So if you can get your work in that, then that's great. Although the problem is there is that that's not always super kind of realistic, just because sometimes tasks just take a long time. Yeah, if you've like downloaded a big payload, right, you need to parse the whole thing. It's not like... Mm -hmm. Right, it's not as straightforward as just being like batched everything up because that's not always (laughs) realistic, right? Well, I always thought we went about things kind of backwards. You know, because obviously your code needs certain things at certain times and you can bundle up these things, but it's really hard to identify what those things happen to be and when they're really needed. So, you you know, you may have to load a bundle, but when do you have to load that bundle? And you may have to load like different packages and images and things like that. But it's always been really difficult to figure out when it's important, just that you need to do it. And so maybe, you know, maybe some sort of scheduling is the answer there or some way of linking those two concepts together. Yeah. And I think we, we know where the bad ideas are, right? Like waiting to load things only when they're needed isn't a good answer either because then you have you know they click on a part in the app and then it, like a spinner comes up for a few seconds and then it does it right kind of there's a spectrum of that though because like there's data that we only want at the very last moment and that's typically data that comes from databases and stuff and then there's like images and stuff that need to be processed ahead of time or even fonts that are more on the less urgent until it's necessary spectrum idle and idle until urgent <laughs> Kind of, yeah. But it's more than that. It's more like, you know, idle until I have some time and then it, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's kind of multiple layers to this. I think that like the first thing is kind of what we were touching on, which is around like increasingly just as developers, we've been 
getting hopefully a little bit better at deferring things. So with like dynamic imports and essentially just kind of trying to like defer work until like it's actually like required. But then there's kind of what, you know, this concept that's just deferring work is not always like an optimal kind of solution because it doesn't take into account like the priority or the importance of the work. And it doesn't necessarily take into account like if it's a good time to be doing that work. So is the main thread actually idle at that point or is it already trying to do something that's super important? So yeah, I think like scheduling is definitely one way that which can kind of tackle that problem. So have you kind of outlined what the idle intelligent pattern kind of looks like? Yeah, so essentially what that pattern kind of entails is it was kind of envisaged by a guy called Philip Walton, who's at Google. And his whole premise was that there is a browser API called request.callback. And request.callback is kind of the sibling of request animation frame. But instead of requesting the next animation frame, it requests the next time that the browser has idle time. And the cool thing about that is that you can kind of defer to the browser and say, like, you do this work when you have some free capacity, right? And so the next part of that is kind of the urgent part. So you defer the work to idle time, but then if you need it before that, you just evaluate it straight away. So you don't necessarily lose the immediacy if you need it. So that's the urgent part. Mm-hmm. So someone could have like a, a web page that has like five different tabs that are different areas of the app, right? And you can, I mean, this is scheduling. I don't think we have figured out yet, right? But you could say like people usually visit the second tab the most, followed by the fourth tab, followed by the third tab, followed by the fifth tab, right? And they can load all those. But if someone clicks on one of them before you finish loading it during your idle time, then it'll actually perform that immediately. Yeah, essentially. So it's kind of interesting because idle to urgent is a pattern, but it's also a library called idle until urgent, funnily enough. (laughs) And uh, so I think the library has two parts. So it has kind of a value getter. So you can basically like get this value at idle time or if like when it's called directly. And the other part it has, I think, is it has a like an idle task queue, which I guess is kind of a primitive form of scheduling. But it's just kind of like a first in, first out kind of scheduling queue? Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't looked at this mm-hmm. source code too closely, so I don't know exactly what it's um, yeah, sure. what it's doing. At a high level, I think that's, yeah, I think it does that. There's no nice like parameter that you can say, hey, this is more important than this. <laughs> well, so it's interesting because there's, in honestly, the idle to urgent library, I think it's quite small. It's like API surface area is pretty small. But there's some other interesting work in actual scheduling. So two examples of that are Google Maps. So they have a scheduler that they've written, which essentially, so it'll do clever stuff like when you're like panning the map, like it will prioritize fetching the tiles around your current viewport. But then if you start interacting with the user interface, like it will deprioritize fetching the tiles because it knows that you probably aren't going to move the map. Hmm. So it can just basically be a bit smarter about like how it prioritizes work. It's almost like predictive technology. Yeah, basically, like you're just trying to prioritize things that you think the user will need next. And so the other example I was going to talk about is React. And yeah, my understanding of the React scheduling is relatively thin, but roughly, I think it kind of came in with a whole time slicing, asynchronous rendering kind of, I think it was like React 16.3 or 
something like that. And to my understanding, essentially, that allows the tasks that React is doing can kind of be prioritized. And so it will kind of prioritize user input over, I don't know, like reconciliating the virtual DOM or whatever it might be. I think that's, yeah, I'm not a React expert, so (laughs) that's roughly my understanding. So how did, I imagine that they don't have a perfect idea of what that means, because as far as I know, we don't have a good idea of when a frame or the last paint actually happened, right? There's like an API for frame timing that's coming out and it's in kind of draft form, but I don't think it's really available everywhere now. Yeah. So my understanding of all that is like, I think there's like a bunch of primitive APIs that are in the works. I'm not too sure, yeah, what stages there are or what they all are. But yeah, I think on the React side, I think that they actually polyfill their own request idle callback. And that does some maths to work out like when the last frame render was, I think. I might be wrong there. So whenever you start the process, it records your performance now or something like that, and then it can bail the further it gets in their queue, probably. Sounds right. <laughs> Maybe you'll have to ask, like, get Dan Abramov on and get him to explain it. That's, yeah, we should do that. <laughs> but yeah, what you were saying was quite interesting around these new kind of APIs, because there's definitely a little need for scheduling APIs, or at least primitives that allow for maybe better scheduling. Because at the moment, you've got request idle callback, and you might be able to hack something together with like request animation frame. But yeah. One of the things I was wondering about is like when you're doing these idle callbacks, like one of the things you can do is to kind of bail out of one of these operations as well. If something else comes along, that's more urgent. Is that right? Yeah, I can't remember. I think there's like a, well, you can cancel the request, to my understanding. Yeah, I don't know too much about how that works. Well, I guess I'm thinking like theoretically, right? Like that's one of the benefits of this pattern as well is that you could be in the middle of working on something and then something else comes along and says like, I need to paint. And then you can say like, okay, well, I'll do this again later. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. So it's all about, yeah, prioritization, basically being able to say like, what is the most important thing that I should be doing now? Like from the browser's perspective. Yeah, now you're talking like interrupts and threads almost, Neil. Like you you would actually have to literally program in an interrupt check or whatever to interrupt your current process and say, oh, what I'm doing now can be reserved till later. Or maybe you use a generator or something that does the work in slices. Yeah, and that's one of the things I want to look at with request idle callback because I think that it has a cancellation handler in it, but I'll have to look more into that. I yeah. think so, like at a fundamental level, kind of one of the problems is is that tasks in the JavaScript event loop like run to completion. So if you have tasks, they will just run until they're done. There is no like bailout primitive per se. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's something that'd be really nice, right? Like if I can say like, I want you to try to do this, but if a paint cycle needs to happen, cancel. Like if a network request needs to happen, cancel. Like whatever you're doing can wait. Mm. Yeah, but it's cool. You've invented interrupts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, basically you could use your closures like a stack in some sort of way to maintain that data, mm-hmm. but it does get weird at some point in that we're basically implementing threads now. Oh yeah. And we still don't have any idea of how much memory we're using and we don't know when the frame really begins. Like we're still JavaScript people with our arms outstretched kind of in some <laughs> dark cave 
uh, stumbling around trying to make this happen. I think we're really short on tools to make it. And, and it's good to see us get more tools, but I think patterns like this are especially important for doing VR, 3D rendering, any kind of audio processing mm-hmm. and media. I mean, it React kind of crosses that threshold too, as you got essentially a rendering engine in what React is doing. Yeah, I think that brings us kind of to the next thing, right? Is that some of these libraries don't just put idle things under the main thread, right? They can do other, there are other approaches than just using the JavaScript runtime itself. Is that right? Like using workers? Oh, not ActiveX components. <laughs> no, not Flash. <laughs> we're not talking about Flash. <laughs> you're going to offload it in a native call. Guys, we're forgetting Java applets. Mm, true. Everybody forgot Java applets. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these work with like service workers, right? How do you mean what works with service workers? Some of the libraries? Not to my knowledge, actually. So the way in which like the first input to they library works for the one that like Google ships, I think it's like from the, it's called like first input today and it's from Chrome Labs, I think. But essentially what you do is you inline a little snippet at the beginning of your page and it like hijacks all the interaction. It adds an event listener to all of the interactions on the page. And then basically when you interact with the page, that event listener has a timer and that's how it determines that first input today. Yeah, the problem with using like a web worker is it's not like it's a, task that you can just kind of schedule with a scheduler and everything because a web worker exists in like a separate realm so you actually have to transfer the data between those realms so it sounds like measuring the metrics pretty easy something we should definitely do and try to like figure out ways to improve but as we get into like brass tacks and things like that there's a lot of like fine-tuning that has to be done there's a lot of shrugging and saying well what if and how do i do this and how do i make the actual experience better without writing my own thread manager. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things I was wondering about is like, we talk about things like mobile first. Is this something where we start thinking about how we take the different tasks that we need to execute and structure them in such a way that it's easy to take this idle until urgent approach? Yeah, and I think maybe that's something that happens more at the framework level going forward. Because I think like the reality is there's a lot of people building Big, hefty web applications nowadays tend to be using a framework. And part of me wonders if like that's the battleground for kind of scheduling. Just because then once you're already using the framework, it can be figuring out like how to schedule work on your behalf, basically. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know one of the things I worked on with Dojo is the idea of being able to separate out the places where content can be dynamically changed to where like it builds it in a separate layer, right? And that's where... It can start intelligently, perhaps preloading some of those layers without us having to necessarily even do anything. Right. And I think that's the cool thing is that like as a framework, you have generally like you can control a lot of the domain. So you have a lot of say in like how work gets processed or how tasks get kind of queued and stuff. But yeah, it's interesting you talk about like mobile as well, because I think interesting, I think that this is kind of the generally if you're on a big brand new MacBook Pro you probably don't notice any of these things, right? But on kind of especially low-end mobile devices, it's like those kind of first input delay is going to generally be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. I think like Neil was saying, I've experienced something like this with Facebook. I think they're kind of the easy target, right? Where you go to their site and kind of have to wait a second to click on things. Otherwise, the site might break and you have to refresh. <laughs> I think it's interesting because so that is 
I mean, I don't know if Facebook do this. That's often associated with like server-side rendering because you end up with this initial first paint that's very quick. Mm -hmm. And then you have the hydration and it takes a little while for that to kind of kick in. Right, right. So you kind of end up, I think they call it like the uncanny valley where you're kind of, the app looks interactive, but you actually can't do anything until like six, seven seconds later, maybe. So James, where do you think we're going to be two, three, five years? Five years is definitely difficult in our current development climate, but where do you think we should be in the future with this? I think like I can see room for these kind of new scheduling APIs. I don't necessarily know exactly what that will look like in its like kind of final state, but mm -hmm. I think that's definitely part of it. And I think another part of it will be a kind of multi-threaded future where, I mean, obviously we already have workers and we've had them for a long time, but it's interesting. There's things like called worklets now, which are kind of specialized workers for specific things. And I'm thinking maybe that we'll see a kind of more adoption of things like that and generally a kind of more multi-threaded browser environment in general. So like a transparent way of managing like these scheduler worklets. So you might give schedule worklets off to the scheduler and it kind of manages all of those itself? Yeah, I mean, it could almost be like you might have something that says schedule this work. I mean, so the biggest problem with the whole worker scenario is that <laughs> if it touches the DOM, I mean, the worker doesn't have access to the DOM, right? Mm-hmm. So if you had work that was kind of like maybe pure, like pure is the wrong word, but doesn't touch the DOM, then it could maybe figure out that there's no DOM calls in there and then just spin that out into a worker or offload that to a worker even. I think that would be quite an interesting kind of uh, scenario. Yeah, it doesn't have to be that firm as far as like the worklets go either. Like you could have... Uh, main thread worklets are just like a blob of work that gets scheduled and like off thread worklets that would maybe switch realms and have like this off threaded type of processing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I was seeing like, yeah, obviously worklets and service workers and things like message channels for kind of communicating between different workers. And yeah, there seems to be like there's a lot of interesting things happening kind of in that arena. Yeah, that was the promise of HTTP2, right? Is that you could just have this open stream of data coming in in some fashion that is always giving you your most needed thing. It'd be cool to see that in JavaScript as well. Can we call them something different than ends and lets? I'm still portals and portlets and st I still have <laughs> fatigue over those. Ugh. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do not come up with the names. I, all right. Who hurt you, Brian? <laughs> it hurts me very much. It's where we came from now. It is. We have to acknowledge our history. All right. Well, James, thanks for coming on. Thanks for uh, sharing with us. Again, we'll include the blog post in our show notes. And until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Oh, oh.